Looking for a unique gift? A new piece of art for your collection? Or a signed copy of my book? Head on over to FelixEddy.com. That's www.felixeddy.com. Thank you. Hi. My name is David McLean. I am the creator of this podcast. This episode is called Nine. And usually here I make a joke about how it's called Nine because you should go back and listen to One. Well, actually, that's not necessarily the case this time. This particular part of the story is happening sort of concurrent to what happened in episode one. In fact, when I originally wrote them, I wrote them up. Basically, I wrote episode one and then episode nine and then episode two and then episode ten or something. You don't have to go back and listen to the beginning if you don't want to. However, regardless of whether you've listened to episodes one through eight or if you're starting with episode nine, you might want to listen to an episode number zero, which I just recently recorded, which gives a synopsis of the events in the book I wrote, The Time Travelers Resort and Museum. Alice, who we see in this episode, is the main character of The Time Travelers Resort and Museum, and it tells her story. That's it. Thanks. The news is next. Hi, you're listening to WXYZ live from the island of Santiempo, and this is the Time Traveler's News and World Report. Time traveling news and information for the discerning time traveler from any timeline. I'm Fergus McCartney. Today's approximate aggregate date is the 24.258th of July, 3202. We have an update today from the International News Desk. Right now, we have a live report from Fergus Hosel, who is coming to us live from Kraftwerk Airport in Bonn, Germany. Hello, Fergus, are you there? Yes, hello, I am here at the airport in Germany, Fergus, where local authorities are temporarily shutting down the Let's Kill Hitler mini-break event across all timelines. Why is that, Fergus? Are the local authorities concerned about ethical questions over killing Hitler? No, Fergus, no one is concerned with killing Hitler. He's Hitler, so no one is concerned with that. The Time Travel Authority here in Germany has been quoted as saying, knock yourself out. Then what seems to be the problem? The problem, Fergus, is that it's a war. A 22nd century couple flew in on their flying car in one timeline, and they were shot down by anti-aircraft personnel. Local time travel authorities do not want anyone other than Hitler to get hurt. Fergus Holgel, thank you for keeping us updated on this issue. We'll come back to you another day for updates on this report. Thank you, Fergus. The third-party fireworks company building in central Santiago burned to the ground last week. Arson is not suspected, but the first and second-party fireworks companies are reporting that they are having a two-for-one sale on leaving bottle rockets starting on Friday while supplies last. That's the post-apocalyptic report for this morning. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. And now, the infinitely spiraling clock. The continuing story of one man lost in time.
Part 2. The Story of Her Life. Her Mother's Journey. The beach at San Tiempo was a terrible place when you really thought about it, but it was genuinely hard to care. Everyone who ever came to San Tiempo understood that the island was part of an alternate timeline ocean where almost the entire planet was underwater. The details of why were a little unclear. And everyone understood the consequences of what that meant. New York was underwater. London was underwater. Everyone's hometown, everyone's country, everyone's everything was buried at the bottom of the ocean. This was, or at least it should have been, tragic to think about. But if you were a time traveler and you understood that there were other timelines and other places and you could go back and see all those things tomorrow, it seemed to matter less. You couldn't help but relax on Santiampo. The ocean had a light blue color that just hinted slightly at green in a manner that suggested that if you had made it here, then you probably didn't need to worry about anything until lunchtime. And the air had just the slightest salty smell to it in a way that made you think that your life would be much better if you had a tall drink in your hand. Because it was such an excellent location for a summer getaway, the social scene in Santiampo was a constantly changing mishmash of people and cultures who couldn't meet anywhere else. In short, it was such an enjoyable, relaxing place to be that even the most conscientious, idealistic people tended to only think about the rest of the earth having been destroyed with a tinge of guilt before they had a much longer conversation about which local restaurant had the best outdoor service. The house on Santiampo was close enough to the beach that Helen could walk down to the shore, and during her 16th year she did so frequently, usually with several warnings from her mother about making sure she didn't die a horrible watery death. Occasionally she went with a towel, and sometimes she even got wet. But this was not the purpose of going to the beach. As far as Helen was concerned, it was to get out of the house. She had reached that age when being tied to her parents all summer was not as much fun as it once was, and she was starting to wonder what the next steps would be and where the world would take her. She wasn't entirely positive, but she was pretty sure that this was going to involve spending a lot of time with insanely good-looking people. Since she didn't know the specifics of how this was going to work exactly, she spent her time staring at the water, which was at least beautiful, even if it wasn't human. Spring had also taken to going down into the water. Like Helen, she didn't tend to swim much as swimming got her wings wet and kept her from flying for hours. Instead, she liked to use her dragonfly wings the same way a real dragonfly would, buzzing the surface and staring down at the fish as they darted in and out of the corals. However, this required a lot of energy, and before too long, spring touched down next to Helen where she lay in, down in the sand, letting her wings absorb the noonday sun. You have absolutely no idea how good the sun feels when you're arthropod, Spring said brightly. Helen stared at the book in her lap. She had been staring at the same page for long enough for the tide to roll in. She had known Spring her entire life, but she was 16 now, which meant that sometimes talking to people was difficult. Fortunately, Spring found that words flowed out of her mouth like a babbling brook and was happy to start the conversation. I never saw a day like this my whole life, she exclaimed. Not until I met your mother. 
It's beautiful, Helen agreed, although there was a wistful tone in her voice, as if the ocean being beautiful was some kind of little tragedy, as if she had been nominated for some kind of acting award and had lost. Spring couldn't help but think that this was an apt metaphor for a teenager's life in general. Helen put the book down and took a small red ball out of the bag she had brought to the beach. Although the ball was red, it was made out of a clear plastic, like a spherical piece of stained glass, and it glittered in the sun when Helen held it up. She waved her hand over it, and the ball rose into the air on its own. "'Who taught you how to do that?' Spring asked with a surprised look. "'Dad,' Helen said with a shrug. The red ball rolled around through the air slowly in a manner that implied— it was hoping something interesting would happen. "'Is he here?' Spring asked. "'Left yesterday,' Helen said. With a flick of her wrist, she made the ball soar out over the ocean and then come back again. "'He had been here for almost a month, though.' "'I suppose it's a shame that there aren't more boys here,' Spring said, raising an eyebrow. The ball dropped to the ground. Helen rolled her eyes. Girls? Spring asked, not sure of where Helen's predilections lay. Helen said nothing. May people? Spring asked with a laugh. Actually, there's an entire pod of mer people over on the far side of the cove, Helen pointed out. They seem to be having a barbecue. Spring was trying to cheer her young friend up, of course, but she could see the problem. Santiampo did not have a particularly large youth population. The rigors of time travel were tough, even on grown adults, and children tended to find a 45-minute ride in the car difficult enough, let alone a slog back to another century. There were a few full-time locals, and some of them have kids, but it put Helen in a position where, if she found someone her own age, she would probably do well to grab hold of them and not let go. It was easier when she was younger, when her mother and father seemed like the whole world, and a day at the beach was enough to make you feel like life was amazing and you had the whole world in front of you. Helen picked up the ball again. She made it soar up to a height of about 20 meters and then let it drop, before stopping its descent right over the ocean. I would just like to meet someone new, Helen said as the ball floated back to her like a balloon that had lost its way. Someone who understands me. Spring sighed. I know what you mean, she said. She did, too. But the trick would be convincing Helen of that. Teenagers are not famous for the unwavering ability to empathize with others. Spring tried a different track. You're a wonderful young girl, she said with genuine enthusiasm. You are going to meet amazing people in your life. You just need to be patient. I don't see how, Helen sulked. Spring tried to hide the exasperated expression on her face with a flutter of her dragonfly wings. It just takes time, she said. Time is the problem, Helen pointed out. If I meet a nice boy at school, what am I supposed to tell him? Hi, Thomas. Yeah, summer holidays were great. I jumped ahead a couple of millennia and spent my days on the beach talking with my fairy godmother. How's that going to sound? You never know, you might meet another time traveller, Spring pointed out. This suggestion struck Helen as so outrageous that both she and the ball flopped down on the sand. That's impossible, Helen moaned. It happened to your parents, Spring commented. 
Helen responded with a low moan that implied that the mention of this was an act of betrayal. That's different, Helen complained. They're so old. Spring smiled and squinted into the sun. Have you ever heard the story of how your parents met? She asked. Helen sat up. They tell me different things, she said. That's because it happened to them differently, Spring clarified. Spring and Helen listened to the sounds of the ocean for a while. It took a few minutes for Helen to decide that she was ready to ask the question that was on her mind. You were there when Mum and Dad met, weren't you? Helen asked. I was there when your dad met your mum for the first time, but not when your mum met your dad, Spring exclaimed. That's nonsense, Helen objected. That is your mum and dad, Spring replied. Things don't always happen for them in the same order. You see, for your dad, when he met your mum, it was right at the beginning. For your mum, it was all happening while your father was in Camelot. Helen frowned. That doesn't make any sense either. Spring nodded. That is your mum and dad. Helen was showing a good deal of patience for a teenager, but clearly there was a limit. I don't understand. How could that be happening while Dad was in Camelot? Well, you have to understand. Your father had gone missing, Spring explained. So your mother and I went looking for him, which was hard, because we had all of time and space to look through and not a whole lot to go on. Still, you found him, right? Helen asked. You must have done. We did, Spring agreed, but it wasn't in the way we expected, and that was where things got complicated. The story of how your parents meet is one everyone is stuck with, and probably affects you more than any other story you are not personally a character in. As such, it can be a little hard to appreciate it. In Helen's case, it was a story that was complicated and full of more than a few mistakes on the part of its main character. However, in the end, it was the story of her life. What else was there to say? I don't know of the world that lies ahead. I don't know if your eyes will be brown or blue. I don't know about the things we will dread. I know I will always love loving you. But I feel so scared every single day. And I feel like the world is crushing me. I'm just trying to keep the wolves at bay. There are so many things I cannot see. So I light a candle and kneel and pray. A 
as I'm waiting for you to change my life. Tomorrow will come, no matter what I say. I need to face my internal strife. Gravitation is not responsible for people falling in love. Listen to me. I promise my words will be true. I know I will always love, loving you. The first day. Although it would one day be known by the ridiculous acronym LAX right now in the warm summer months of 1939, it was simply known as the airport. Indeed, any more of a name would have been implying a certain grandeur that it almost certainly lacked. Even the term airport in this case was merely shorthand. It wasn't like there was a baggage claim or a duty-free shop or a gated exit or anything that a proper airport would have. It didn't even have lights on the runway. Lord knows what you were supposed to do if you were trying to land at night. Crash, probably. Fortunately, it wasn't nighttime right now. The sun hung oppressively in the sky, convincing both man and beast that the day would be better off spent in the shade, preferably in proximity of the fan in the tiny airport control building. The thin breeze it generated had drawn the pilots, the control workers, and two housecats to huddle in the controller's office. This frequently, if anything, only made things worse, but you couldn't blame anyone for trying. Southern California is a desert butting against the ocean, with all the stars of Hollywood in the middle. If you couldn't make it to the ocean, that left the desert and the stars. Both were a little too hot for most people to be comfortable. A small red biplane came into the airport for a landing. It was a Sopwith Camel, popular in those days with bush pilots. The pilot radioed the control room and indicated that she was coming in. The controller was surprised to hear a female voice, and didn't really do much to hide that fact, putting extra emphasis on the word ma'am as he asked her to bring the plane in. As the pilot spoke into the radio, the plane's wings dipped slightly, a sign perhaps that she wasn't accustomed to flying solo just yet. She dropped the radio receiver into its receptacle and brought the plane's wing back to level. Sorry, the pilot called over to the back seat. Just put his thing down, the voice from the rear cockpit called out. I'm going to kiss the ground when we land. The pilot of this vehicle, Alice Anderson, known to time travelers throughout the ages as the mother of time, had grown up in an era when traveling in a plane meant having a flight attendant hand you a towel at the end of a long flight. Spring, her companion, sitting in the rear seat, 
was a product of the Regency, when there were no aeroplanes at all. This meant that they came from opposite ends of the historical spectrum when it came to travel. However, in one idea they were unquestionably united. They both hated flying in the biplane. It was loud, cold, and scary. Still, they both had to admit that it was useful. It was free, for one thing. The plane had been left behind by Alice's once and future husband, who was missing, and since no one else had cared to claim it, she had decided to put it to good use. Also, it was easy to repair, since it was primarily made of wood and canvas. Also, with the help of a chronometer, you could travel anywhere you wanted on the planet Earth. Any time, any place, real or surreal, you could go there. The only limits were your imagination. That doesn't make flying and landing the damn thing any easier, Alice thought bitterly. The plane's landings were bumpy at best, and Alice was still learning to handle the controls. When they finally came down the runway, Alice breathed a sigh of relief. She knew that as the pilot she was required to spin the plane's good qualities, but this didn't make the actual flight any easier. It just meant that Alice had to pretend that it wasn't a big deal. "'Sorry,' Alice said. "'I should have logged more flight training hours before we went on this trip.' "'So where are we, exactly?' Spring asked, looking up at the sky. The sky was a cloudless pale blue from one end to the other in the precise way that an English sky never was. "'Los Angeles,' Alice stated matter-of-factly. 1939, she added, realizing that a year might be helpful. Spring frowned. I don't speak Spanish, she said. Alice smiled. You don't have to. This is America. We're near the Pacific Coast. This is the golden age of Hollywood. What's Hollywood? Spring asked. It's where they make motion pictures, Alex explained. Spring shook her head. I don't know when the world became so obsessed with its own reflection, she frowned. Alice knew that so far Spring's experience with photography was primarily limited to the selfies that they had taken with Alice's mobile. Movies aren't like selfies, she clarified. They have stories. I think that you'll like them. Alice taxied the plane into the airport's hangar. Unlike the other places that they had traveled to, this time they were not coming into a time-traveler-friendly landing zone. Instead, they were arriving at an ordinary airport, which was a little nerve-wracking. The landing field on the island of Santiempo was usually filled with flying machines of every sort imaginable, from Wright flyers to astronauts in futuristic ships. Here in L.A., things were bound to be less esoteric, and they would have to do their best to blend in. The blades of the aeroplane's propellers finally grounded to a halt. "'Welcome to Los Angeles, ma'am,' the voice of the controller whispered in Alice's ear. "'We hope you enjoy your stay.' Spring stood up, making to get out of the plane. "'I don't know,' she said. "'I suppose this aero will take some getting used to. "'To say nothing of this dress,' she added." Spring was wearing a perfectly ordinary red frock, but she had bristled from the moment Alice had insisted that she put it on. 
No woman in her right mind, she insisted, would walk out of the house in that dress. Her entire legs were exposed up to the knee. The shoes were, if anything, even worse. Spring had insisted that wearing high heels was akin to walking on tiptoes. And while Alice privately agreed with her, this was simply a case of when in Rome doing as the Romans do. Spring eventually relented, but refused to go anywhere without a wig. Alice had explained until she was blue in the face that the era of powdered wigs had long since passed, but on this point Spring wouldn't budge. No, no, my mother would be ashamed of me if I let the world see my own curly hair, she insisted. Alice, whose own red curly locks were at war with both gravity and fashion, tried not to take offense at this. In the end, Spring settled on a black bobbed wig, which Alice thought made her look a little like Lena Horne. Not that Spring would know who that was. Is that why we're here? Spring asked. To see a motion picture. Alice shook her head. We're here to meet someone. Someone who may have knowledge of what happened to Keith. At least I hope so. There were a lot of loaded implications in that sentence. Keith's disappearance was an ongoing drama in their lives. Alice knew that he wasn't dead, but he'd gotten lost somewhere in the ocean of time and dimensional space that their lives went crisscrossing through. That there was someone anywhere who would know where Keith was was a long shot at best, but that such a person would be in L.A. of all places was surprising. The reason for this had to do with one of the oddities of time travel— because of the rotation of the earth, you can only travel back to the same day of the year as you left. Today was April 7th, and it happened that history had recorded the man that Alice needed to see as being in California on that day, which made Alice and Spring new arrivals in the city of Los Angeles. Just so you know, Alice said, swallowing dryly, in this era, people tend to be prejudiced. "'Prejudice?' Spring asked. Spring was a woman of color born two centuries before what Alice would call the present. Alice knew that this was a conversation that was probably going to be redundant, but that didn't mean it wasn't worth having. "'People are going to judge you by the color of your skin,' she acknowledged timidly. Spring laughed. "'Honey, my mother had to buy her freedom. I'm not going to have to do that again, am I?' No, Alice admitted. Well then, I think that we'll live, Spring decided. It isn't always like that, you know, Alice insisted. It gets better, Spring smirked. We'll see. She opened the small handbag that she had picked up in the future and pulled out a small mirror studying her reflection. Apparently the price of freedom is a healthy breeze between your legs. Spring commented. Alice noticed that in spite of Spring's objections to the dress earlier, she seemed to be looking at her reflection admiringly. They found their way to the front of the building and walked out into a parking lot that was mostly filled with old Ford Model A's. Beautiful cars, really, but Alice wasn't interested. Instead, she glanced up at the sky Although it was a beautiful day, she couldn't help but think of the night sky. In what seemed like another life, Alice had been an astrophysicist. 
and she knew that Edward Hubble was doing his groundbreaking work on calculating the distance of galaxies over at the Los Angeles Observatory right now. Even with the smallest bit of luck, he might be studying the stars tonight. For Alice, the stars in Hollywood were dim compared to the ones in the night sky. How are we getting out of this place? Spring asked. We're not going to have to ride in one of those motorcycles again, are we? Spring was referring to their mode of transport back in London. Not this time, Alice answered. I've arranged for something a little sturdier. A man in the black tie and tails of an English butler walked up toward them. Although Alice had never met him, she recognized his large ping-pong ball eyes, balding hair, and pleasantly inoffensive face as that of a generic Fergus, one of the time-traveling community's support androids. "'I was told that you were coming,' the Fergus nodded, politely clicking his heels together. "'I have a car waiting.' "'Thank you.' Alice said, and they followed him to the far end of the parking lot. Fergus androids were employed by the time travelers to make their lives easier when they transitioned from one era to the next. Alice had tried to explain to Spring how the Ferguses worked with mixed results. She had tried comparing him to her mobile, a device which Spring had seen but certainly didn't understand. Unfortunately, this didn't really help matters, as on a superficial level, they didn't really have much in common. Then she tried calling him a mechanical man, comparing him to a steamship, which was at least something from Spring's era. This was better, but it was still problematic in that the Fergus had no smokestack or paddles. Truth be told, Alice was a little unclear on how exactly the Ferguses worked. They were a piece of futuristic technology, and she wasn't an engineer. Finally, she had settled on talking about the puppets from the Punch and Judy show and how the Fergus was essentially a puppet with no one working him. This seemed to make the most sense. So if he's a puppet, Spring whispered, staring at the Fergus, what is he on the inside or his bones made of wood or something? I think steel is more likely, Alice whispered back. Oh, really? Spring asked looking the man up and down. The Fergus led them over to a Duesenberg, which both women looked at wide-eyed. "'Your carriage awaits,' the Fergus said, opening the rear door. The Duesenberg was roughly the same width as a baby crib and the same length as a bus. Still, it was elegant, with beautiful lines and a lovely leather interior. Alice and Spring squeezed into the back seat together. This, Spring said admiringly, is an excellent carriage. Alice reached into her purse and pulled out two pairs of sunglasses. She handed one set over to Spring before putting on a pair herself. You might want these, she suggested. Spring held out the glasses at arm's length, clearly unsure of what to do with them. What do they do? she asked. They block out the sun, Alice clarified. It is the fashion to wear them. Fashion was at least a concept that Spring understood. You take me to the sunniest place on earth and you want us to pretend that it's night, she observed, putting her sunglasses on. Fergus stepped 
into the car behind the wheel and adjusted the rear-view mirror. "'Where to, madam?' "'The Hollywood Hotel,' Alice said. "'We'd like to check in first. "'We have a contact to meet at a studio in the morning.' "'Right-o,' the Fergus replied, "'and they sped off into Los Angeles just like Rita Hayworth.' Spring seemed to appreciate the 1930s better than any era they had visited. Alice had met Spring during the Regency. After that, they had traveled to the 21st century, and then they had gone to the island of Santiempo, an island just for time travelers, where Alice had a home in the 11th millennium, and where they'd hired a pet sitter for Alice's pet Triceratops, Grendel. Grendel had pouted desperately when Alice had left, but Alice was insistent that he needed to stay home this time. After that, they had been to a few other places in their search for Alice's would-be husband, Keith Quick, and while Spring enjoyed several of them, the 30s was the first time that Alice had seen her friend's eyes sparkle with wonder. Perhaps there was something just a little bit familiar about everything here. The old men from this era were of an age to be her grandchildren, after all. The Duesenberg's cramped but elegant interior was a lot more like the sort of carriage that was popular during the Regency. Spring stared wide-eyed out the window as they passed the corner of Hollywood and Vine. "'I like this place,' she said brightly. "'You say this is the Americas?' "'That's right,' Alice said. "'We're six thousand miles from home.' and it's been over a hundred years since we worked in the circus. Spring frowned. Does that mean Jeff and everybody we know are dead? she asked. The answer, of course, was yes, but Alice shook her head and said no just the same. It's best not to think of it that way. They're alive to us. It's a strange world that you live in, Spring remarked. She glanced over at the Fergus driving the car. Alice noticed that she was looking the man up and down. "'Are these mechanical men common in the 21st century?' Again, Alice shook her head no. "'Fergus is from the future. My future, not just yours. He's here to assist people like you and I.' The Fergus seemed to be ignoring their conversation, but Alice still felt a little uncomfortable talking about him as he was sitting in the front seat." She wasn't sure what sort of feelings the Fergus had about his own existence. She understood Spring's curiosity, but she didn't think it was polite to talk about him like he was a new model of refrigerator. Spring apparently agreed with this sentiment. Because the next time she spoke, she leaned over and whispered, He said he was made of steel, right? Alice thought she knew where this was going. Steel, yes. Among other things, she said. Spring stole the briefest of glances at the android before speaking again. Do you suppose he is, you know, steel all over? Alice resisted the urge to burst out laughing. I don't know, she admitted. I never checked. The Duesenberg rolled up into the Hollywood Hills. Alice had been to L.A. once before. She attended an astronomy conference there in the days before she invented time travel. Los Angeles was a huge, sprawling metropolis at the time that was known for its smog, homeless population, and clogged highways. 
That was a solid 80 years from now, and right now L.A. seemed more like a product of the Old West. It was a boom town filled with people panning for gold, except that they were doing it on the silver screen instead of trying to find it in a river. It was easy to imagine that the city had the same brand of lawless optimism that Dodge City or Tombstone had possessed a few decades before. The Duesenberg pulled up in front of a hotel that was dripping in Art Deco. A bellhop with a uniform that looked like it had been pulled out of the wardrobe department at MGM opened the Duesenberg's door. "'Welcome to the Hollywood Hotel,' the bellhop said. He started out by smiling brightly, but his expression changed the moment that Spring stepped out of the car and became rigid and disapproving. "'Your maid,' he said coldly. "'She'll need to go around back.' And there it was, the ugliness behind the Hollywood beauty. It had taken all of twenty minutes in Los Angeles for it to show up. Spring and Alice had actually spent a year in the 19th century without having been confronted directly with racism. Not because it wasn't there, of course, but rather because they were part of a small circle of people who rejected it. Perhaps because of their status as circus performers, the idea was anathema, since they were all generally viewed as freaks anyway. Out here in the real world, people treated them the way they treated everybody else, which usually involved saying whatever ugly thought jumped straight into their heads. Alice confronted the bellhop with a dirty look. I'm sorry, she said without even the faintest trace of sorrow in her voice. As far as she was concerned, this man represented the worst that humanity had to offer. Spring, however, was more forgiving. "'I so right,' she said, reaching over and squeezing her friend's hand. "'I'll meet you upstairs in a few minutes.' It was a pity that her friend couldn't see the lobby of the hotel, because in spite of what the staff lacked in manners, the foyer was truly impressive. The lobby was a masterpiece of design, complete with a crystal chandelier and an impressive cherrywood staircase that looked like it would have made Norma Desmond turn green with envy. Everything was gilded, sculpted, and contoured down to the last detail. The entire room was designed for an age that still saw opera gloves, cigarette holders, top hats, and tails as the height of sophistication. It was an age of zoot suits, fedoras, spats, and white wall tires, an age when butchers wore three-piece suits to work, although no one was really sure why. Alice checked into the hotel, key in hand. She shuffled into a resplendent but rickety elevator that looked like it ran on a nine-volt battery. "'Which floor?' a chipper-looking elevator attendant asked. He was standing in the corner where the elevator buttons should be and was wearing a uniform that would have been a little formal even if he was having dinner with the president. Four, Alice answered. Sure enough, the attendant chirped, and he cranked the lever hard to the left. It occurred to Alice that there was a very narrow window of time when turning a lever all day meant you had a full-time job. The elevator made its way slowly to the fourth floor. Alice nodded politely to the attendant, who patted her on the rump as she stepped out of the elevator. It seemed that the ugliness of the era wasn't directed at spring alone. And now, 
Bedtime with Tabitha. All right, I'll tell you what. I am going to... I'm going to put some <laughs> mustard and ketchup on you. And some pickle. Some people don't like pickle, but I like pickle. And I'm going to put you between two pieces of bread. And I'm going to have a girl sandwich. You remember when I used to do this? Yeah. I haven't done it in a long time, though, huh? Yeah. Okay. All right, so shall we read Tabby Won't Sleep? I have the good version here. Now, you said the other day that the other version doesn't feel right, right? Can you use the word yes and not nod your head when we're <laughs> recording? <laughs> okay, all right. Here we go. We'll just read the book, okay? All right. Tabitha won't sleep. It was eight bells, and Tabitha Winter didn't want to go to sleep. I don't want to go to bed, she insisted. There are too many things to do. Well, it's time to go to bed, Mama Kitty said. Come on. Let's put your jammies on. Dad will read you a story. No, Tabitha said. I don't want to go to bed. I want to go somewhere, somewhere exciting. Mama Kitty considered this. Hmm, she said. It's very late. Where do you want to go? I want to go dancing, Tabitha said. I want to go dancing at the top of the Eiffel Tower, and I want to drink fancy root beers out of champagne flutes. Then we'll go dancing, Mama said. And I want to go to the zoo, Tabitha said. And I want to go into the cage with all of the little birds. Then we'll go to the zoo, Mama said. And we'll go into the cage with all of the little birds. And one of the birds will come down and land on your finger. And I want to travel to outer space, Tabitha said. I want to travel to the far side of the moon and have a picnic with green cheese sandwiches. Then we'll ride a rocket to the moon, we'll lay out a picnic blanket, and we'll eat sandwiches. And we'll leave the ants behind. I want to fly a plane, Tabitha said. I want to fly a plane over the house and do a barrel roll while Dad watches. I don't want to do that, Mama Kitty said. Maybe you can do that with Dad. Oh, all right, Tabitha said. I want to go to the beach, Tabitha said, and I want to wear a funny bathing suit with ruffles. And I want to run into the waves and build a sand castle for all the hermit crabs. Then we'll build the most elegant sand castle you've ever seen, Mama said, where a hermit crab princess will wait in the tallest tower for a handsome hermit crab knight. I want to ride horses. I want to gallop across a plain with a sword in my hand. Then we'll ride horses and carry swords, Mama said. And if you want... You can ride a unicorn, and I will ride a donkey corn. 
Can we rescue Dad from the tallest tower in the castle? Tabitha asked. You bet, Mama said. I want to go to the Amazon jungle, Tabitha insisted. And I want to study the howler monkeys. Then we'll go to the Amazon and we'll climb trees and swing on vines and study with a great howler monkey professor who will teach us all the secrets of the world. I want to go to the Caribbean, Tabitha said, and I want us to be permaids and I want to look for pirate treasure. Then we will be permaids, Mama said, and we will find a sunken pirate ship and we will fight with pirate sharks. I want to go to the Arctic, too, Tabitha added. I want to see the North Pole and Santa's elves and the abominable snowman. Then we'll go see the North Pole, Mama said, and we'll have tea with the abominable snowman, and it will be served by Santa's elves. We can do everything. We'll fill your life with experiences and memories and adventures. Wherever you go, I will follow. I want to go to Egypt, Tabitha said. I want to see the pyramids. Then we'll go to Egypt, Mama said. And we'll see the ancient cat mummies. And Daddy will answer the riddle of the Sphinx. But that is going to be another day. Tabitha yawned. I'm tired, she said. I think I want to go and lie down and think about what we're going to do tomorrow. Come on, Mama said, picking her up. Let's go lie down. That's the best part of going to sleep, thinking about all the things we're going to do in the future. You know, Tabitha said, tonight I think I'm going to dream about you, Mama. Maybe tonight you will dream about me, too? Maybe, Mama said. Maybe I will. But Tabitha didn't hear this. She was fast asleep. My name is David McLean. I am the creator of this podcast. I just wanted to say thanks for listening. Tabitha Won't Sleep is the children's novel that my wife and I did. It was for our daughter Tabitha, who you might have heard just a little bit of in there. It is her favorite book, or at least was for a very long time. It is available from my publisher Mirror World or from my wife's website, felixeddy.com. The Time Traveler's Resort and Museum, which is the first book in the series that the Infinitely Spiraling Clock comes from, is also available from my wife's website, felixeddy.com, or from my publisher, Mirror World. And that's it for right now. I just want to say thanks for listening. If you like, you can subscribe and write a review. I would imagine iTunes is the best place to do it. I might someday work up the courage to read the reviews, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Anyway, I just want to thank you. 
Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, next week, Alice is going to find Keith, but it's going to be a very different encounter than she thought it would be. Thanks. Have a good day.